Tonight, as we look at the cross, we're going to look at a number of different passages. The crucifixion of Christ is recorded in all four of the gospel accounts, so we're going to touch on a little bit of every, every one of the gospel accounts because they all talk about different details, bring out different elements that when you put the all the pieces together, it's a beautiful picture that we have before us. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 27, so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles at this time to Matthew 27, and we're going to look tonight at six questions on the crucifixion, six questions on the crucifixion. From the moment that Christ entered humanity, and we celebrated this a few months ago as Jesus came as a little baby born in Bethlehem. We read in Luke chapter 2 about the message that the angels delivered from God to the shepherds there outside of Bethlehem, told them where to find baby Jesus, what he would look like when they found him. But we knew that, and he knew specifically, that the moment he entered humanity, he was headed to the cross. Despite the many occasions that he visited Jerusalem, he knew that the last time would be to offer himself up on the cross on behalf of every sinner. Uh, we looked at it this past Sunday. We called it, and many have called it, his triumphal entry. And for many reasons it was. It was very triumphant, but as we're able to look back on those events, we know that it was also one of the most agonizing moments in Jesus' life. We refer to this week as his Passion Week because he suffered and endured so much on our behalf. Jesus, on that triumphal day, rode into Jerusalem, but it wasn't as triumphant as we might have expected because the Bible tells us that after he came into Jerusalem, he wept. He wept over Jerusalem because of their unbelief, for he had specifically come to the house of Israel to gather them all to himself, to bring them all into his kingdom, but as a nation... They rejected him. As Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he informed them that he would be betrayed, but that he would also soon die. When he prayed in the garden, he agonized over the suffering that he was about to endure as he was about to take the full punishment of every one of our sin. The agony of the suffering he would experience in our place manifested itself there in the garden in sweat drops of blood that poured from him as he prayed. Jesus suffered physical abuse at the hands of those who arrested him, those who questioned him following his betrayal. He was spit in the face. He was smacked in the face. All of this suffering innocently. Once Pilate determined to have him crucified, Jesus, we're told, was scourged. And we don't give, we're not given in Scripture the full details of that, and I'm thankful that we're not. History gives us pictures of what that was like and we're not even going to get into details because i feel like when the bible is silent on some things it just needs to be left silent but he was scourged and his body was just beaten and torn and mangled he was beaten down so much physically that he was unable to even carry his cross to calvary we cannot begin to understand how much jesus suffered for us but what makes it remarkable is that he knew from the beginning that this was all going to happen. He knew the depth of pain that he was going to experience, and he still continued marching toward the cross. He knew the pain and suffering would just increase the closer he came to the cross, and he willingly accepted it all. We read Christ say in John 12, 27, he said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. This is what he came for. It didn't matter what happened from day to day because everything was leading to the cross. 
Satan may have tempted him, offering him alternatives. Peter opposed him going to the cross. When Jesus said he was going to go to the cross, he's going to die on the cross. He even said he was going to rise from the dead the three, three days later. Peter said, be it far from thee, Lord. It's not going to happen. His followers couldn't understand the connection between him suffering and the glory that would come from all of it. Because every time he spoke of him dying on the cross and rising from the grave, they were troubled by the saying. It bothered them to hear that. But imagine what the Bible would be like if you took out the cross. If you took out everything that happened there at the cross. I can tell you exactly what it would be. It would be a big storybook with many valuable lessons and nothing more. The Bible without the cross would leave nothing for sinners. One theologian said, the central keystone for all time and eternity on which the whole purpose of God depends is the cross. The cross may not be a popular subject for many to look at, but without it, we have nothing. The cross reminds us that the way to glory was paved in blood. We may rejoice in knowing what Christ accomplished for us at the cross, but there is no excitement in knowing how much he suffered. I'm thankful that we don't know how much he suffered, but we know he suffered greatly. Now this evening, as we turn our attention to the cross, we're going to answer six questions on the crucifixion. And first of all, and this may seem rather rudimentary, but first question is, who was it that died? Who was it that died? Now, despite the fact that Jesus was completely sinless, had broken no laws, had caused no riots, had brought no harm, bodily harm, or injury to any person, he had, and had been declared completely sinless and guilt-free by Pilate, he was still condemned to death. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, it summarizes what Jesus did. It says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. The Bible literally says that Jesus Christ here on earth went about doing good. He didn't bring harm. He may have caused division in some areas where people believed in him and others rejected him, but he never caused anyone harm. He went about doing good. Many people gladly received the message of Christ, but the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they opposed, for the most part, his ministry, rejected his message, and remained envious of Christ's popularity with the people. It was so obvious that Pilate knew when the chief priests and the religious leaders brought him to Pilate, we're told that Pilate knew they delivered him only out of envy. This is why the Jews orchestrated all of these plans to have Jesus crucified. It wasn't because Jesus was guilty of some wrongdoing. It wasn't because Jesus had sinned in any capacity. It wasn't because Jesus had brought harm or some bodily injury to anyone. It was out of envy that they wanted him dead. And as you look at the life of Christ from beginning all the way into the end, you see that the faith of the disciples steadily increased while simultaneously you watch the unbelief and the hostility of the religious leaders increase against him as well. All of it would come to a head at the cross. When the Jews watched Jesus breathe his last breath upon the cross and give up the ghost, they thought they had finally won. But the truth is that they were the ones who had actually lost. Towards the end of the Gospel of John, in John 20 and verses 30 and 31, we're given the purpose 
of this book. And I want you to listen to what these two verses say. John 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. John testified that the gospel was written to affirm as well as to defend that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is who he is. From the early days of the church all the way up to where we are today, false teachers have been creeping in and have been leading people away from this very truth that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 1, it says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. We have a number of trustworthy witnesses who have declared that Jesus is the Son of God. In John 1 verse 34, we have the record of John the Baptist, who as he saw Jesus approaching, called out. It says, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. He referred to him even as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Not too much longer after that, when Nathanael first met Jesus, he said of him in John 1 verse 49, he says, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. A few chapters later in John 6 verse 69, Peter declared, and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. In John eleven twenty seven, we have Martha. Martha, the dear sister of Lazarus, who said to Jesus, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. On numerous occasions, Jesus himself affirmed that he is the Son of God. When he was baptized... Matthew 3, verse 17, records for us words from our heavenly Father himself, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If that's not convincing enough, when Jesus encountered the man who was possessed by a legion of demons, the demons cried out to Jesus in Luke 4, 41, thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, it says, for they knew that he was Christ. The enemies of God were declaring him to be the Son of God. The one who spoke the world into existence, the one who holds all things together so perfectly, humbled himself, came to earth to die for the worthless sinners like you and me. The Son of God died for you, the Son of God died for me. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We know that verse often like the back of our hands. Probably it was the first verse you ever memorized. You're probably looking at your hand and looking at, wondering, why well, you don't know where some of these marks came from. But we know John 3.16 better than the back of our hands. But how often do we think about what John 3.16 really means? How often do we stop and consider what it means that God loved us more than can be explained, that he would send his only begotten son to die in our place, that through faith in him, we might have everlasting life. We rattle off those words so quickly without even thinking about what they're saying. It wasn't just that God sent his only begotten son 
to show us the way to heaven. But he sent his only begotten son so that he might lay down his life to be our way to heaven. None of us deserved even an ounce of mercy. None of us deserved a taste of that eternal grace. And yet God has shown us both. He's extended mercy and he's offered us grace. But in order to do that, his eternal wrath for sin needed to be satisfied. He can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend nothing, nothing ever happened. But rather than pouring it out on deserving sinners like you and me, God chose to direct all of his wrath, all of the punishment for every sin, everyone that would ever do, he directed it all on his only begotten son. And this is nothing new to us. We know this. I'm not sharing something with you that you haven't already heard and something you already haven't believed, but when is the last time that you considered how much God loves you? That he was willing to do all that for you. That his only begotten son became the eternal object of his wrath for all sin. There at the cross. The cross wasn't just a bill that we couldn't pay. It was eternal punishment. Eternal separation from God. And Jesus paid for all of it. He didn't cover part of the debt and say, listen, I've done 90%. You're going to have to figure out the 10% on your own. He settled it all and did it once for all. God saw the helplessness of man where we were unable to pay off the debt of our sin. And rather than put us away and put us out of our misery and condemn us eternally forever, he made it possible for us to have redemption and salvation. For God, as John 3, 17 says, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Instead of giving us what we deserved, eternal judgment, God gave us what we didn't deserve, everlasting life through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Remarkable, incredible, magnificent. Don't even begin to describe the depth of love that God has demonstrated to us in sending Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to be our savior. To help us keep this blessed truth alive and constantly in our minds, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And he instructed us to observe it in remembrance of him every time we do it. Listen to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. The Bible says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. The more you think about what Jesus has done for you, how much he suffered, how much he loves you, the more remarkable our salvation becomes. Jesus died our death so that we might be able to share his life with him for all of eternity. But question number two, how did Jesus die? How did Jesus die? And we know that Jesus was arrested without cause in the garden. We know that he was illegally tried. We know that he was beaten at the hands of Pilate. He was scourged. Finally, he was nailed to the cross. 
In John 19, verse 15, it records the cries from the angry mob that were demanding for Christ's crucifixion when Pilate was offering an alternative to free either Christ or Barabbas. They chose Barabbas, and they cried out in John 19, verse 15, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Speaking of their desire to have Christ crucified. The Jews thought they, they were finally getting their way. They had finally trapped Jesus, and he was going to be completely removed from the picture, never to be thought of again. The only problem with this is that things weren't going to happen according to their plan. As much as they thought these were their plans being implemented, these were actually God's plans being implemented. Christ had declared in John 10, 17, he says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. The Jews hadn't defeated Jesus. Jesus was willingly offering himself up to die. This was part of his plan. In fact, it was part of God's plan from the very beginning of time. The prophet Isaiah spoke of Christ's suffering and death hundreds of years before Christ was even born. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was always going to be this way. All of this that was happening there in these days was exactly how it was supposed to happen. And interestingly enough is how the Lord worked it out that Christ would be crucified. You see, the typical way for Jews to perform capital punishment was through stoning. This is what the Jews were accustomed. In Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verses 22 and 23, it tells us that hanging someone on a tree was actually a curse. It says, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that the land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. And then listen to what we're told in Galatians 3.13, because this is further evidence of that. In Galatians 3.13, the Bible says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Crucifixion was not a common practice among the Jews. But it was common to the Romans who actually borrowed it from the Phoenicians before them. Either way, based on the language of Deuteronomy chapter 21 and even what we see in New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, we see that God had long ago ordained that Jesus would die upon the cross because he would be made a curse for us. If he were to die by stoning, it wouldn't have been him becoming a curse for us. What was typically done in those days as a person was crucified is that a placard, a title, would be nailed to the top of the cross above the head announcing the victim's crime. And we're told in John 19, verse 19, that Pilate wrote these words, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And this infuriated the Jews as they demanded the title be changed to say that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. Not that he was the king of the Jews, but that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Surprisingly, on this matter, Pilate was unflinchingly rigid. This is where he puts his foot on the ground and says, 
No. On the matter of condemning an innocent man to death, who he knew was innocent, he could be swayed. But on the little title, the placard that hung upon the cross above the head of Jesus, that is where he would draw the line. Regardless of what Pilate did, everything was, exa- was happening exactly according to God's plan. Jesus' hour had come for him to lay down his own life so he could do as he said, that in three days he might take it up again. This is what he had told the disciples on numerous occasions. This is what he was about to do. Jesus was fully in control of everything that was happening. And at any moment, he could have spoken a single word and escaped the hands of those who wanted him dead. But the time had come for him to fulfill what he came to earth to fulfill. Now, we could talk in great detail about the cruelties of the crucifixion, but based on the fact that the Bible gives us only minimal details, I will only say that from a physical standpoint, it was one of the most excruciating excruciatingly painful ways to die. The lesson we can learn from the crucifixion is that we're told about Christ in Philippians 2, verse 8. It says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus accomplished everything he needed to accomplish. And there upon that cross, he cried out in victory three words, It is finished. He was victorious because he was not defeated. Even though for a moment the Jews thought they had succeeded, it was Jesus who was actually victorious. Jesus was doing just as he said he would do. He was laying down his life that he might take it up again. And later on, we're going to see that the chief priests and the Pharisees remember that Jesus said that he was going to raise himself up and they would actually position guards outside of his tomb because they remembered what he had said but he was laying down his life that he might take it up again. And in order to lay down his life in such a way for him to become a curse for us, he needed, he needed to be nailed to a cross. Crucifixion is a form of death that a person cannot perform on themselves. Jesus willingly surrendered himself to God and drank the cup of suffering and shame that was prepared for him to drink. And he gave himself over to the ones that wanted him dead. Jesus declared, to Peter in John 18, 11. He said, put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? When it comes to believers gaining victory over the world, the flesh and the devil, the crucifixion is incredibly significant. Question number three, when did Jesus die? When did Jesus die? And the simple answer to this is that he died at Passover on the same day that the Passover lambs were actually sacrificed and slain in the temple signifying the nation's deliverance from Egyptian bondage many years ago. Under the old covenant that was currently in place, lambs were slaughtered for the people, but under this new covenant, the shepherd would actually die for the sheep. The original instructions for celebrating the Passover, they're recorded for us all the way back in Exodus chapter 12 and verses 2 to 5, and everything about it is personal. And notice what it says in this passage. Exodus 12, 2 through 5, it says, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months, It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Everything about that is personal. You, 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 you. Because all of this, all of this was pointing to one thing. 
It was pointing to the one Lamb of God who would come and sacrifice himself to be a personal God to every single one of us. The Passover lamb, it was typically selected on the 10th day of the month. And they would be watched for three days. For three days, they'd watch it. They'd inspect it. They'd make sure that it was without blemish, that it was without defect. And then on the fourth day, and then it would be, cruci- uh, then it would be sacrificed. The Jews had three years to watch Jesus during his public ministry. Three years to listen to his teachings. Three years to witness his miracles. Three years to carefully examine everything that he did to verify all the claims that he made. If he indeed is without blemish, without sin, and the Son of God. And after that time, they found that he had no blemishes. He was indeed perfect. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verses 18 and 19, it says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. For three years, they got to witness Christ. God in flesh here on earth. And the Jews rejected his teachings, refused to believe the evidence and all of his miracles, continued in unbelief. And many today are making that same costly mistake. Jesus died at Passover. Question number four. Why? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? The answer is found in the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, those words just roll off of our tongues without us putting any thought. And as a result, we often lose sight of the fact that they're teaching us exactly why Jesus died. This verse has become so familiar to us that it loses its splendor, it loses its, its, its excitement as well. The message is simple, but it's profound. God loves lost sinners. And he sent us his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save lost sinners. And salvation became possible for everyone who would believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Those who believe in Jesus as their Savior receive everlasting life. Those who don't receive everlasting condemnation. That is why Jesus died. We're told that Jesus spent three hours upon the cross and and from the hours of, uh, of, of noon to three In the afternoon, the sky was darkened in those three hours. At the end of darkness, Jesus cried out in Matthew 27 and verse 45. Notice what it says here in Matthew 27 and verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all land into the ninth hour. Verse 46 says, In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me. And Luke 23:45 tells us that at the very same time it says the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. This veil hung in the temple and it separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies which is where the ark of the covenant rested where the high priest entered only once a year on the day of atonement. The veil being torn was God the Father's way of showing that all believers would now have direct access to God through the person of Jesus Christ. The old sacrificial system was now over. Jesus had become the once for all sacrifice, fulfilling everything for everyone, giving all who believe on him now a direct channel between them and God. And Jesus was that channel. 
The sacrificial system showed us everything that was wrong with us and how much we needed forgiveness and how far, how far we fell short of God's standard of perfection. Jesus' sacrifice showed us that he was everything for us and how we had been forgiven from everything. The cross was so important because in the cross, we have peace. We have reconciliation. Listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 20. It says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. We have reconciliation through the cross. We have peace with God through the cross because we've been forgiven of all of our sins at the cross. At the cross, our sins were forgiven. At the cross, Satan was defeated. And listen to how Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 explains it. As Paul is talking to a group of believers here, he says, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Because of the cross, we can live in victory over our sin, enjoying the blessedness, enjoying the forgiveness that we have and the peace that is offered only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And question number five, for whom did Jesus die? For whom did Jesus die? When Jesus first began his public ministry, John the Baptist saw him approaching and called out in verse, uh, chapter one of verse 29, it says, behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. He called him the Lamb of God. He said that he is the one who comes to take away the sin of the world. All of the sacrifices that were made in the old sacrificial system, all they could do was only cover our sins. And that is why sacrifices needed to be made on a daily basis. You sinned today, you went to the temple today or to the tabernacle before there was a temple, and you offered your sacrifice there to, the priest would offer it on your behalf on the altar. And if you went home and you sinned again, guess what? You were going right back. And even if you did it again tomorrow, guess what? You're gonna find yourself back at the tabernacle again or back at the temple again, just ongoing. You got so well that you were on a first name basis with the priests that were there in the temple or the tabernacle. All of that because all of the sacrifices that were made were only temporary. They only covered our sins and they had to be redone every time you sinned. You couldn't take care of future sins. It was all what you have done right now and needs to be atoned for. And it only covered our sins. I can't even imagine having to live during that system. Can you imagine having to offer a sacrifice? And the way that God did it to really make it sink in was the one who was guilty needed to make the first cut. You had to be the one to kill the animal. You had to be the one to bring the animal, to kill the animal, and the priest would go in to offer the blood upon the altar and burn the altar, burn the sacrifice on your behalf. But you had to do the difficult part. And you think that everyone would learn and only make a mistake once and then have it over with. But that wasn't the case. Every one of us are guilty of sin and every one of us would have been at the temple and the tabernacle before that every single day having a sacrifice offered to God because of our sin. When Christ died on the cross, he put an end to that sacrificial system because he was the perfect substitute for us and he made full atonement for our sin, not just for what we've done in our past, but for what we've done in our past, in our present, and even in the future. 
He didn't just cover our sins. He paid the full debt of all of our sin. Jesus' one-time sacrifice did away with the sacrificial system entirely because all the previous sacrifices did one thing. They pointed to the one ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make on our behalf, which would do, it, would do what all the other sacrifices couldn't do, and that is to satisfy God's eternal wrath for sin once and for all. Because of the cross, we read in Romans 10, 13, some of the most encouraging and exciting words ever told. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is true because of what happened for us at the cross. In 1 John 4, 14, it tells us, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Praise the Lord for that. To be the savior of the world. Jesus, Hebrews tells us that he tasted death for everyone. And he did this so that all we have to do is to believe on him and we will be saved. Jesus didn't have to do any of this. And yet he's done everything and he's done it all for us. If he were to be fair... He would have left all of us to die in our sins and to suffer the eternal consequences that we all had coming. But out of his great love for us, he willingly came to earth and took our place on that cross so that we might never have to taste the eternal death that our sin brought upon us as long as we believe in him. Aren't you so glad that God is not fair? He is so far not fair that he's tipped the scales so far in our favor that he's unfair. Unfortunately, though, even though Jesus did, did all this and died for us, offered himself as the Savior of the world, not everyone believes on him. Not everyone accepts it. God extends his offer of grace to all, but not everyone will receive it. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, it tells us of God. It says, God will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. God is not willing that any should perish, but at the same time, God is not going to force salvation on anyone. He gives ample opportunities for people to be saved, but ultimately the decision is up to each individual person. God has done his part. In fact, God has done more than his part. He's done all that we need to do. All we have to do is to accept this precious gift. It is an offer that is entirely too good to be true because it shouldn't be this way. Because how could God love us so much to do all this for people who didn't love him? Out of his great love for us, Jesus died for the entire world. And question number six, the final one. What should the cross mean to us today? What should the cross mean to us today? The way we view the cross today says a lot about our spiritual condition. There are plenty of unsaved people that have sentimental feelings about the cross. They may, wait, they may even wear a cross necklace, but sentimental feelings mean nothing and have no lasting impact on your spiritual life. If you wear a cross, a cross necklace, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that you should go and rip it off and throw it away. But a lot of people that are unsaved are wear the cross necklace as a sentiment because they feel it represents something. They feel it means something because they wear it, but unsaved is still unsaved. Someone has said that sentiment is, is feeling 
without responsibility. True believers are the ones who have come to the cross of Jesus, believing in him as their savior, and have actually followed him. This means that you're reconciled to God through the cross, and you're walking in light of the salvation that he has given. This means that you're reconciled to God, that you have become his child. And this is expressed in the words of Galatians 2.20. Paul says of how he views his own personal salvation. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus took our place on the cross and he died for every single one of us. And in Christ, we have now died to the world and to that old sinful nature. The cross may be gruesome to think about, but every believer has every reason to glory in that cross. Every single believer has experienced a miracle because of the cross. And because of the cross, we have a glorious message that we're able to share with the world. The cross reminds us that we have a heavenly father that loves us more than words can ever express. The cross reminds us that we have a Savior who became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Paul declared, and may this be our heart's desire to share this idea. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer tonight. Lord, I know that there's a lot of things that we could have mentioned here tonight, Lord, with regards to your son's crucifixion. But Lord, what we've highlighted here, Lord, as, as basic and foundational as these things are, I pray, Lord, that these have renewed a desire within us, Lord, to glory in the cross. Lord, to rejoice in what has been done on our behalf. Our words fall so short of expressing how much we love and appreciate you and all that you have done for us. Lord, we may never understand, at least here, the depths of your love for us to do what you've done, to send us your only begotten Son, knowing full well, Lord, that he was coming to earth to go to the cross where he would be made sin for us. The one who knew no sin, the just would die for the unjust. Lord, we know that you knew from the very beginning that he would be the object of your eternal wrath for all of our sin. Lord, our minds struggle so mightily to comprehend just what that must have looked like. That Jesus Christ could have suffered an eternity's worth of sin's punishment for every single human being in the few hours he was upon that cross. Lord, I'm thankful that we never have to know it. I'm thankful, Lord, that we never have to experience even an ounce of that. But Lord, you and your grace have extended an offer to us far better than what we've ever deserved. And Lord, I pray that in faith we have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, knowing that he's done everything for us. And in him, we have victory over sin and death and a future home in heaven where we may glory in your presence forevermore. May that be what we're able to rejoice in as long as there's life and breath within us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tonight as we close,